Now we're blessed because we get to continue worshiping this morning uh, through the study of God's Word. And uh, we have a, an exciting passage to enter into this morning, one of, our, uh, one of the most exciting portions of the book of Judges. We're moving into the story of Samson. Uh, Samson is easily the most well-known judge, and uh, there are some incredible stories in the life of Samson, and uh, much that we're going to learn. I think you're going to be surprised even uh, as we study the story of Samson and his life, uh, just uh, the reality of who he was, his character, and uh, the ways that God used this man who in many ways was very fallen, uh, very sinful and rebellious, and yet God used him to bring deliverance uh, to his people. So we're going to have a good time over the next few weeks studying Samson. Well, I want to share a story with you this morning as we begin, just to kind of help set the stage for where the nation of Israel was during this period in the book of Judges. When I was uh, 22 years old, I had the opportunity to work at a camp out in California. I worked there actually for a couple summers, and uh, one of the things that we did at this camp was take groups of junior high and high school aged boys out on backpack trips into the Sierra Nevada wilderness. A uh, beautiful area up near uh, Yosemite National Park, for any of you who have ever been out that direction. Uh, this particular summer, one of the places that we took a group of students to was a place called Shut-Eye Peak. And uh, it was a 13-mile hike up into the Sierra Wilderness. And before we had set out for this hike, um, our camp director had given us, you know, some guidance and some instructions. And, and he had warned us that because this summer was a uh, particularly dry summer there in Southern California, um, because of the drought that was going on, the bears out in the wilderness had come down out of the high country and were scavenging campsites of hikers. And there have been numerous reports of bear activity and bear sightings. And, and so uh, we went into this hike, you know, kind of knowing that there might be the possibility of encountering some bears. Well, we drove up to the trailhead where we were going to set out on our hike. And we get to the trailhead, and there at the trailhead, there were large signs po posted by the rangers. And these signs warned of bear activity and mountain lion sightings. Now I'm thinking, oh, great, now we got to worry about bears and mountain lions. Well, you know, myself and two other guys in their 20s are in charge of this group of about 20 junior high kids, right? I'm thinking, all right, Lord, help us here, right? So we set out on our hike. We hike 13 miles up into the wilderness. We, we arrive at Shut-Eye Peak, and, and uh, we had encountered some other hikers on the way there, and those hikers had warned us. Hey, they said, hey, you guys are going to a beautiful spot. You're going to love it. Just beware. Last night, we had bears circling our campsite the whole time uh, we, were, we were there sleeping. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Now, <laughs> we're going into the den of the lions here, right? Well, we get to the Shut-Eye Peak. And uh, the first thing I do upon arriving at Shut-Eye Peak is I set our 20-some junior high boys off to collect as much firewood as possible. I was determined that we were going to build the biggest bonfire the Sierra Nevadas had ever seen. You know, I, I mean, I'm like, literally, I was like terrified of the possibility of bears coming into our camp. So we built this massive bonfire, and uh, the place was called Shut-Eye Peak, but I didn't get any shut-eye that night. I, I think I slept with one eye open as, like, literally every, you know, every brush of wind through the bushes was a massive black bear coming to get us. Every twig I heard snap in the forest was, you know, again, a... a big massive black bear that was coming to eat our food and uh we had already you know we had 
put our food up in a tree about 200 yards away from our campsite. I mean, we had taken all the precautions, but like I was just terrified all night long as we slept in the darkness trying to keep this bonfire blazing to keep the bears away. Well, friends, I'm going to tell you something. I was never so happy as when we woke up the next morning and I saw that first ray of sunlight break forth. When the dawn came and the light began to shine on the mountains behind us, it was like this wave of relief just washed away all of my fear, all of my anxiety. The coming of the dawn made all the difference in the world. Maybe you've had an experience like that in your own life where, where the, the darkness of light, the sun breaks forth, and all of a sudden there's a, a new hope that arises. The dawn has come. Well, I was thinking about this experience this week while I was studying for our passage this morning because our passage this morning finds the nation of Israel in the midst of their darkest hour yet. You may recall we've been in this series in the book of Judges, a, a period of Israel's history that covers 350 years, a period between their entrance into the promised land and the arrival of the first kings of Israel, Saul and David and Solomon. This is the 350-year period in between that time where we find a series of cycles, in fact, seven cycles of rebellion that make up the book of Judges. And that's really what the, the book is all about. It's about this period in Israel's history where God had led them into the promised land. He said, look it, I'm giving you this land of blessing. Everything is for you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. All I ask is that you worship me and honor me and that you forsake all of the pagan gods and the pagan cultures around you. In fact, God had told the Israelites to literally drive them out. I want this land to be a holy land set apart unto me and for you, my people, to be a testimony to the nations of what life lived in relationship with God looks like and the blessings that come from that. But, but sadly, as we've seen throughout our series in the book of Judges, instead of experiencing all the promise that God had for them, Israel experienced nothing but peril as they continued on in these cycles of rebellion against God. Instead of honoring God, they turned their backs on God. Instead of driving out the pagan cultures, they literally accepted and adopted and embraced the pagan cultures. They began to worship the gods that they were forbidden to worship. They began to intermarry and intermingle with the peoples around them. And Israel was falling into greater and greater states of rebellion and wickedness and depravity. And so today, as we move into Judges chapter 13, we come to the last of these seven cycles of rebellion that we find in the book of Judges. We, we come to the last of God's deliverers that are mentioned in the book of Judges, this man named Samson who we're going to begin to talk about this morning. But understand, friends, where we find Israel today, as I said a moment ago, is in their darkest hour yet. Not only have they been cycling through rebellion and, and God's, uh, God's judgment, God's uh, allowing oppressive forces to come and oppress his people as his means of judging them, disciplining them, leading them to repentance, to call out to him, to cry out to him. God sends deliverers, right? We've seen this cycle over and over and over again. But the cycle is not only spinning this way, it's also spinning this way. Because every time Israel turns their back on God and forsakes him, they sink deeper and deeper and deeper into the depths of their sin and depravity. And Israel 
today in Judges 13 is in their most perilous place yet, but we're also going to see it's here where God breaks through to his people with a ray of hope. God shines a ray of hope into Israel's darkness. In fact, today we're going to see that the dawn of deliverance has come in the form of a new judge, a new deliverer, a man named Samson. Samson is a fitting name for this judge. It's a fitting name for the period Israel finds itself in because Samson's name literally means little son or, or sonny. And so isn't it interesting that God sent a judge named little son to break forth a ray of hope into Israel's darkness. And so we're going to look at how God used Samson. We're going to discover in the coming weeks, as I mentioned earlier, Samson well, was a very flawed person, but he was one that God would use to usher in a significant period of deliverance in the history of the nation of Israel, a period of deliverance that would ultimately culminate in the rival of our true and great deliverer, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that later this morning. Judges chapter 13 is where we find ourselves today. We're in verses 1 through 25. I'm going to read our passage for us, and then I want to come back and I want to highlight some observations that we can learn about Samson, as well as some applications from what we see in our passage that, that can speak to our lives today and lessons that we can learn and apply uh, as we go forward this morning. We're in chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Again, this is the seventh cycle of Israel's rebellion against the Lord. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now again, just a quick reminder, when we see that term, the Lord gave them over or gave them up or gave them into, right? This is a, an idea we've talked about throughout this series. One of the ways that God brings chastisement and correction to his people when they're living in rebellion against him is to give them up to their sin to allow them to experience the consequence of their sin for the hope of leading them to a place where they cry out in repentance to him, recognizing their need for him. In this case, that judgment, that discipline came in the form of the Philistines. The Philistines were a culture that had come to Israel from the Aegean Sea region up near Greece and Turkey. They had moved down the coast of the Mediterranean and they had set up their civilization in the southwestern corner of the nation of Israel. And they were a powerful people, a powerful military force, and they became a thorn in the side of Israel for over a hundred years. And so this is the people that God had brought to oppress the nation to hopefully lead them to repentance. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. This is the longest period of oppression yet in the nation of Israel's history. Verse 2, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, 
and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to teach us. Teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman and she sat in the, as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtel. This is the backstory to the final deliverer of God's people in the book of Judges, this, this man named Samson. As I said, we're going to be intrigued as we look at the story of Samson over the next few weeks. But this morning, I want to share just a few observations from our passage about what God has provided his people with here in this final judge, this final deliverer. Some observations and, and some applications even for our lives here today. The, the first thing we learn in our passage this morning is that in Samson, God had provided his people, the Israelites, with a child of promise. Samson was a child of promise. Take a look at verse 1 with me, if you will, as we just refresh our memory at the, the depths of Israel's depravity and where they found themselves at this point in their history. Verse 1 says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. 
Here we have the last and final cycle of the Israelites' rebellion in the book of Judges, which led them into their longest period of oppression yet. God gave them into the hands of the Philistines as his means of chastising his people and and hopefully driving them back to him in repentance. Now, this period of oppression here in this story here at the outset is, is unique out of all of the other stories in the book of Judges. In fact, there's one significant point here at the outset of our story this morning that maybe you noticed as we read in our passage. Something different from everything we've seen so far in all the other cycles of Israel's rebellion. Friends, did you notice that there's no cry for relief from God's people here in this passage? There's no cry for help from the Lord. There's no cry of repentance from Israel. In fact, all we're told here in verse 1 is that Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and they've been given into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And then it goes from that to then God announcing his promise of a deliverer. There's no recognition on the part of Israel of their sin, of their rebellion, of their need for deliverance. There's no cry. This is different from every other story we've seen so far in the book of Judges. So what's going on here? Well, friends, remember, as Israel has continued to spiral downwards into greater and greater depths of rebellion and sin and depravity, the Lord has given Israel over to the Philistines, and at this point in their history, Israel has literally just given up. God's given them over, and they've given up. Israel doesn't cry for relief in this passage because they don't even recognize anymore that they need it. They don't even realize how fully ensnared by their sin they've become. They've literally become comfortable in their compromise. So comfortable, in fact, that they've accepted their oppression at the hands of the Philistines. In fact, next week in chapter 15, verse 11, we're going to see as as Samson begins to attack the Philistines and push back against the Philistines, there's a point in Samson's story where 3,000 men of Judah literally come to Samson and say to him, what are you doing? Don't you realize the Philistines are our rulers? God has sent them a deliverer, and they're literally upset at the deliverer trying to bring salvation and deliverance. Because they become so comfortable in their sin and rebellion against God. So comfortable that they've accepted their subjugation at the hands of the Philistines. They, they've literally been co-opted like, like, like a cancer in a healthy body. The Philistines have literally just slowly engulfed the nation of Israel. And understand, this didn't happen through military conquest. The the Philistines were a great military power. We're going to see that throughout the Old Testament. But but in this case, the Philistines didn't need to conquer Israel militarily. They had conquered them mentally and spiritually and relationally. You see, Israel had forsaken God's call to drive the pagan cultures out of the promised land. And and they they allowed the Philistines to build their civilizations and their culture. And they began to trade with the Philistines and have relations with the Philistines and, and give their sons and daughters to the Philistines. And so at this point in Israel's history, about 1,100 years before the coming of Jesus, the end of the period of the judges, Israel has so co-opted, has been so co-opted and so compromised by paganism 
that they've begun to basically be okay with it. So okay that they literally speak against Samson and say, what are you doing? These guys are our rulers. They become comfortable in their sin and their rebellion. And now they found themselves in bondage, a bondage that they didn't even realize they were in. Israel's literally on the verge of extinction here. And the people don't even care anymore. How sad, friends. How tragic to be so caught up in your sin and rebellion against God that you no longer even realize just how desperate you truly are. It kind of reminds me of another culture that we know pretty well. Our own, doesn't it? Our world today is living in such rebellion against the Lord. We've basically forsaken all of his will, every one of his ways We've turned our backs on him. We see our nation floundering. We see our economy floundering. We see our po politics going crazy. We see our culture going mad. And it's almost like God just says, you know what? I'm going to give you over to the consequences of your sin and rebellion. Why would we be surprised? This is how God has worked throughout history. This is what we see with the nation of Israel. They are in this desperate place and they don't even realize it. But it was into this dark reality, into this desperate situation, that God's amazing grace breaks through with a ray of hope in the form of a special message to a childless and barren woman. Look again with me at verse 2 in our passage. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Friends, isn't it interesting? Manoah and his wife were such fitting recipients for this message of promise from God. Manoah and his wife here, they were literally a, a microcosm of the nation of Israel as a whole. Barren, childless, with no future. I mean, they were literally a vision of what Israel as a nation had become. A people with no hope, no future. And it was into this couple's life that God spoke a promise of hope, provided an unexpected message of amazing grace. The angel of the Lord appears here to Manoah's wife. Now, we've already talked about the angel of the Lord in this series, right? We've already seen him twice in the book of Judges. We saw the angel of the Lord back in chapter 2. We saw the angel of the Lord in the story of Gideon. And friends, do you remember, we talked about who is the angel of the Lord? Well, when you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. So, so this is Jesus appearing to this woman who is barren, childless, and it's Jesus who brings her this message of hope. Friends, isn't it amazing that even in the Old Testament, it is Jesus who is so often the bearer of good news. And even today, friends, Jesus is still the bearer of good news. Maybe some of you this morning are here today because you're looking for some good news. And I'll tell you something, Jesus has good news for each and every one of us. He still brings promises of hope, promises of new life. And so God here shows 
Manoah and his wife, that he is in the process of preparing a savior for the nation of Israel. Samson would be a child of promise. God was showing that he is faithful to his people. God was showing Israel that he keeps his promises, even to wicked, sinful, rebellious people who are totally undeserving of God's faithfulness. To them, God brings a message of amazing grace, a promise of hope. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. You know, it's interesting in this promise God delivers, this promise of Samson. Here, here in Samson, friends, understand this. We see a savior that no one asked for. We see a deliverer that the people didn't even know they needed. Samson is purely a gift of God's amazing grace to an undeserving people. I saw a story on the news this week that reminded me of what we see in our passage this morning. This past week, down outside of Tampa, Florida, there was a large 10K race taking place. They had cordoned off a whole section of one of the major freeways down there near Tampa, and thousands of people had, been ga had gathered to take part in this 10K race, both, both runners and spectators. There were thousands of people lining this freeway. Actually, not lining the freeway, in the middle of the freeway, waiting for this race to begin. Out in the distance, unbeknownst to the crowd that was gathered there for the race, a drunk driver was barreling towards this crowd. The drunk driver had evaded some of the barricades that the state troopers had placed, and, and as the drunk driver came speeding at 70 miles per hour, headed directly toward this crowd of thousands of people gathered for this race, the crowd was totally unaware. They had no idea of the imminent tragedy that was awaiting them. Florida State Troopers tried to veer the car off the road, tried to stop the car. The car kept evading, going 70 miles closer, closer, closer to this crowd, speeding directly towards this group of people who had no idea the danger they were in. All of a sudden, there was a single state trooper who was the last line of defense between the drunk driver and the crowd only a few hundred yards away. A state trooper by the name of Tony Shuck. Tony directed her car head-on into the path of the drunk driver. And she collided head-on, putting herself in between the drunk driver and the crowd that he was about to plow into. She literally gave, laid down her life to save this group of people who were totally unaware of their need for rescue. I heard that story and I thought to myself, this is exactly what God did for the nation of Israel. Israel was totally oblivious of their need for a Savior. They hadn't cried out to God for salvation, for deliverance, and yet God in his amazing grace delivered Samson. And friends, isn't this exactly what God has done for each of us through his son, Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that God proved his love to us in this, in that while we were still sinners, completely unaware of our need for a Savior, not even asking for deliverance, totally fine in our rebellion and our wickedness and our depravity, in that state, while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ came and he died. For us, 
He took the hit of death and judgment for us. He did God of amazing grace. Friends, do you know that God? Do you have a personal relationship with that God? Have you put your trust in that promise, that gift of amazing grace that he offers each and every one of us? The gift of life that that saves us from the impending judgment of death and eternal doom, eternal separation from God. Jesus laid down his life so that we might have life. Samson is the child of promise. He points us to God's ultimate promise in Jesus. But the second thing we learn about Samson in our passage this morning is not only is Samson a child of promise, but in Samson, God has provided his people with a child of purpose. Here in verses 6 through 23, there, there are two key features that I want us to recognize this morning. We, we see here in this extended portion of chapter 13, God, number one, reveals his purpose for this child, for Samson. But secondly, God supplies a provision for Samson's parents. Let, let's take a look at both these things. Number one, God's purpose for Samson. God comes to Samson's mother and tells her that she's going to conceive a son. But then he goes on to inform her that this child is going to have a special call on his life. He is to be set apart for service to God. He is going to be a Nazarite. Now, now a Nazarite was somebody who was intentionally set apart to service of God. And we read in Numbers chapter 16 about God's provision, his rules for those who choose to take on this service of a Nazarite. We're, we're told first and foremost that this is something that an individual would choose for themselves. That if you were living in Old Testament times, you could choose to set yourself apart to serve the Lord for a temporary season of your life. That was part of the Nazarite vow. It was a, it was a self-declared decision, and it was a temporary, just a, it was a period of time in your life. And a Nazarite, somebody who was choosing to set themselves apart from God, they were going to display this, they were going to acknowledge this to the world around them by doing three things. By not eating or drinking of the fruit of the vine. So no wine, no grape juice, no grapes, right? That, that's one of the ways that they set themselves apart from the rest of the culture. Number two, they were not to cut their hair. Number three, they weren't to have any contact with dead bodies. This, this is the stipulation for somebody who was taking on the vow of a Nazarite. Now, Samson was unique as a Nazarite in two ways. Number one, Samson didn't choose this for himself. God said, I am setting apart your son for service to me. I'm choosing this for him. And number two, his service isn't going to be temporary. He is going to be set apart unto service of the Lord from the day of his birth until the day he dies. And he is to keep all of the Nazarite vows. No wine, no cutting of hair, no contact with dead bodies. And Samson was to be a visible depiction to the nation of Israel of what a person who is set apart to the Lord in service of the Lord looks like. And one of the things that we're going to understand about Samson over the coming weeks is the reason God called Samson to this Nazarite lifestyle for his entire life, was to give Israel a visible reminder of what God had originally called them to. 
Samson was supposed to live in such a way that his life reflected the calling God had given the people of Israel. Remember, God had told Israel, you are a people who are to be set apart unto me, to honor me, to serve me. And God said, I want you to renounce all of the pagan ways of the cultures around you. You are going to live differently. You are going to live to reflect my honor and glory. You are to be a living testimony to the nations of what life lived in relationship with God looks like. You are a people set apart. And so God set apart Samson in this way to be a visible reminder to the nation of what God had originally called them to, friends. A people set apart in service to the Lord and a testimony to the nations. Now understand, this calling that God gave Samson, the calling that he had given Israel, it is still God's calling for his people today. Do you understand that, friends? God still calls his people today, even those of us who are followers of Jesus, to be set apart from the world in which we live. We are to live lives distinct and different, lives of holiness, in pursuit of holiness, to set ourselves apart from the cultures around us. In fact, if you remember, back in the fall, we looked at the book of 1 Peter. And the book of 1 Peter has a lot to say about this matter, right? In 1 Peter chapter 2, for example, the apostle Peter tells us, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Friends, understand, the mission God gave Samson, the mission he had given his people Israel, is the same mission he gives us today. To be in this world, but not to be of this world. To live our lives in such a way that the world looks at us and sees that we are distinct and different and set apart. And our lives should reflect our pursuit of the Lord and our pursuit of holiness, which is ultimately a reflection of who he is in his holy and righteous character. And so we seek to honor him by emulating him and trying to pursue greater Christ-likeness in our lives. And understand this, friends, this is important. And this pursuit of holiness matters. It matters for our testimony to the world. The, the, the great theologian A.W. Tozer, he once put it this way. He says, where does Christianity destroy itself in a given generation? It destroys itself by not living in the light. By professing a truth, it does not obey. Friends, there is nothing more damaging to the reputation of Jesus in this world and the reputation of the gospel, and the mission of the church, than when those who call themselves followers of Jesus don't live like followers of Jesus, and don't pursue a lifestyle that looks like Jesus, and aren't seeking to honor God in our lives, whereby we end up looking no different from the culture around us. That's where Christianity destroys itself, 
in a given generation. The Apostle Paul puts our calling like this in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Some translations translate that in which you shine as stars in the world. That's our calling, friends. Our lives are to so display the holiness and Christ-likeness of God. Right? And again, we're not going to get this perfect in this life. We're in an ongoing process of growing in sanctification and Christ-likeness, but we should be pursuing holiness and living our lives in such a way that we shine as lights in this world. This past week was spring break here in Chisago, and Monday night, my kids and I and a couple of their friends, we went out on a night hike down along the St. Croix River. We went hiking through the woods along the river in the dark at night. It was awesome. You know, just, there's a lot, a lot of cool things you discover walking in the dark. We came into an open clearing and we laid down in the snow and we looked up at the sky and the stars just were bursting forth in glory. They were so bright, it was incredible. And friends, that's what God says our lives are to be like. We are to shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. C.S. Lewis once said, how little people know who think holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. Friends, have you ever met somebody who is so walking with the Lord and so, so pursuing Christ-likeness in their life that, that they just exude that that lifestyle. They just exude that Christ-likeness. And, and I mean, it literally is. It's irresistible. You want to be that kind of person. You want to be with that kind of a person. This was what God had called Samson to. This is what God calls us to. But, but secondly, here in verses 6 through 23, we also discover that God had made a provision for Samson's parents. We, we, we see here this, this interesting conversation. It's kind of a cryptic conversation that the angel of the Lord, remember Jesus, has with Manoah, Samson's father. And, and Samson's father, he wants to know from the angel of the Lord, how is all this going to work, right? Like, like, he has all these questions. He has all these questions. And the angel of the Lord basically says to Manoah, look it, you don't need to worry about the how. You just need to focus on the who the one who's given you this promise. Manoah says to the angel Lord, wait, wait a minute, wait. How, how are we supposed to raise this boy? Like, like how is all this going to work? And the angel Lord just says, look it, here's what I told your wife. <laughs> he just restates the instructions again. And then Manoah says, well, well at least tell me your name. Why do, you want my, why, why do you want to know my name? It is wonderful. Here the angel of the Lord was echoing the words of Isaiah 9, 6, that great messianic prophecy. Unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Same word there in the Hebrew, Pella. The angel of the Lord says, you don't need to know my name, it's wonderful. He's declaring that you are in the presence of God. Manoah says, well, at least let me make you some food. And he says, don't bother making food, but if you want to give an offering, offer it to the Lord. 
And there's this parenthetical statement in chapter 13, because he did not know it was the angel of the Lord. And so he makes this offering, and as the fire is ascending, the angel of the Lord ascends in the fire up into the heavens. And then Manoah realizes that he has been in the presence of God. See, friends, Manoah was all concerned about how God was going to do all of these things. God wanted Manoah to focus on the who that was going to do all these things. And it's very interesting, friends, when God puts a calling on your life, if God calls you to an act of service, if God has a mission that he calls you to, if God says, look, I want you to step out in faith in, in a way that you've never done before, Oftentimes when God puts these calls on our lives, we, we start getting so wrapped up and worried about the how, right? Like how, are, how exactly is this going to work, Lord? And God says, look, don't worry about the how. Keep your eyes on the who. Focus on the one who's given you the calling. When God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and he led Moses and the children of Israel up to the edge of the Red Sea and God said to Moses, I want you to cross through the Red Sea. Moses said to the Lord, I can see Moses saying to the Lord, wait a minute, Lord, how, like, how exactly is this going to work? We're going to walk through the ocean? And God said to Moses, don't worry about the how. Just focus on the who. Years later, after the period of the judges, the nation of Israel found themselves in the land of Babylon. They had been taken captive by another oppressor. And there was a young man named Daniel that God had called to live separate and holy, set apart from the culture around him. And the king of Babylon said to Daniel, if you don't do what I tell you to do, if you don't follow our mandates, we're going to throw you into the lion's den. And Daniel said, you can throw me into the lion's den, but I'm not going to follow your mandates. I'm going to honor the Lord. And so the king brings him to the lion's den. He's about to throw him in. And God says to Daniel, Daniel, trust me, I'm going to take care of it. And I can see Daniel saying to the Lord, wait a minute, Lord, like, how exactly is this going to work? We got a whole bunch of ravenous lions down in this pit. God says to Daniel, don't worry about the how. Keep your eyes on the who. A thousand years after the period of the judges, Jesus Christ was walking across the Sea of Galilee. And his disciples were in a boat out in the distance. And Jesus called to the apostle Peter, Peter, I want you to come and walk on the water with me. And I can imagine Peter looking over the edge of that boat. <laughs> now, Lord, like, how exactly is this going to work? You, you, you want me to step over onto the water and I'm going to walk? And I can imagine Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, don't worry about the how. Keep your eyes on the who. See, friends, when God calls you, don't worry about all the details. Just step in faith and trust that he is sovereign and he's going to provide and he's going to take care of you. And when God has a plan and purpose for your life, he will always see it through to fruition because he is a faithful, promise-keeping God. And we can always trust him. Point number three in our passage this morning. In Samson, God had provided Israel with a child of power. Probably the, the, most, the thing that Samson is most well known for. 
his empowerment by God. In verse 25 of our passage, we, we read that as Samson was growing and the Lord was blessing him, verse 25 says that the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtal. Here the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, began to stir in Samson's life. It, it, it's kind of the picture I, I envision a, a smooth, clear lake on a summer morning, right? And, and a fish jumps, and that ripple effect stirs the waters. This is what we see taking place in Samson's life. The Spirit was beginning to ripple in his life, stirring in him, preparing him for action, preparing him to, to live out the calling that God had put on his life. Now, Samson is, like I said, well-known for his strength. We're going to see his superhuman feats of strength in the next couple of weeks. And, and Samson's strength is often most associated with his hair, right? Like, like we, 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 we grow up taking our Sunday school lessons and we think that Samson was strong because he had long hair. Friends, Samson's hair had nothing to do with it. Samson's hair was not the source of his strength. Samson's hair was a symbol of the source of his strength. The real source of his strength was the Holy Spirit who empowered Samson to do these superhuman feats of strength. In fact, we're going to see next week in chapter 15, three times we read the words, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed to Samson. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. It was always God's Spirit that had empowered Samson's acts of strength. And I want you to understand this this morning, friends. The very same Spirit that empowered Samson also empowers each of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. But unlike Samson, we don't need for the, to wait for the Spirit to stir in us. If you put your trust in Jesus, friends, you've already been stirred. In Acts chapter 1-8, the Lord told his disciples before he ascended into heaven after his resurrection, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. That was his promise to his disciples. And you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. But I'm going to empower you to do this. That word empowerment, power in Greek is dunamis. It means an explosive power. It's where we get our English word dynamite from. That's the kind of power God gives us. A supernatural explosive power to carry out the mission that he's given us. But God hasn't just empowered us for this mission. He's also provided a means for us to make that power useful. Right? Like you can have an outlet in the wall. But if you don't have an appliance to plug into it, who cares, right? I mean, you can have all the power you want if there's no purpose for it, if there's no way to access it, right? So God's not only supplied the power, he's given us the means to use it. How so? Well, look what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 and 4 through 7, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So friends, understand this. Number one, God's empowered us, and he's given us the means to put that power to use. He's given us spiritual gifts, He's given us different opportunities for service. He's given us different activities in which, in which we can be involved. And so, friends, God has not only given us the power, but he's given us the means to use that power. 
I, I find it ironic. I often find, I talk to people and they, they say things to me like, well, Jason, my, my Christianity is so boring. I, I just find Christianity boring. Friends, you want to know my responses to that? What kind of Christianity are you following? Because if you're following true Christianity, I'll tell you, it is anything but boring. To be empowered by the Spirit of God, to be gifted with gifts and acts of service and activities in which we can use God's empowerment to advance his mission of bringing the good news of Jesus to the world, to display God's holiness to the world, to make an impact on this world. I mean, that's anything but boring. I mean, if you're bored as a Christian, you either got the wrong Christianity or you are not living out the empowerment that God has given you. And if that's where you're at today, friends, let me just tell you, we would love to talk to you because there are endless ways for you to use your gifts and your service and your activities for the sake of the glory of the Lord. But all of us, friends, should be on mission for the cause of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got the empowerment. We've got the means. Let me close with this. I saw a cool story this week. One of the heroes of my generation, Tony Hawk, famous skateboarder, probably the best skateboarder who's ever lived. 53 years old, he's still skating at the highest levels. I've been following Tony Hawk since I was a junior high kid, shredding on my vision skateboard as an eighth grader. This past week, Tony Hawk broke his femur in a skating accident, cracked his leg bone in half. The x-ray was so brutal, I didn't even want to put a picture of it on the screen. Tony Hawk, 53 years old, still skating at the highest levels. It's interesting that this same week that he had this accident, HBO came out with a documentary on Tony Hawk's life titled, Until the Wheels Fall Off. Tony Hawk says, I'm going to skate until the wheels fall off. Friends, if a guy can be that passionate about riding a skateboard, how much more passionate should we be about living for the advancement of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Amen. God's empowered us. He's called us. He's given us the means. We just need to have the motivation to get up and go. Man, I want, I want my life's motto to be not until the wheels fall off, but until the cover of this Bible falls off and until this pulpit falls apart, until there's not a breath in my lungs, Amen. I want to be living to declare the glory of God. Well, friends, there's a lot more that we could talk about in Samson's story this morning, but we're going to have a great couple of weeks ahead of us as we continue in our journey of looking, about, looking at how God brought about the deliverance of Israel through Samson. It was a deliverance that Samson begun, had begun, which would ultimately culminate in King David's deliverance of the Philistines. He would finally defeat the Philistines. But King David would only bring about a political salvation. Another king was to come who would bring about our full salvation. Another king in the line of David, a king named Jesus. Let's close in a word of prayer and thank the Lord for the deliverance that we have in him. Heavenly Father, we just thank you this morning for the opportunity to study your word together, to be inspired by your truth, to be equipped and empowered, to go out and live to the glory of God for the sake of the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, give us that passion to be your people, to be ambassadors of Jesus, 
to be so committed to the gospel that we share that same motto until the wheels fall off, until there's a breath left, last, le- left in our lungs, until there's blood pulsing through our bodies. God, may we live to honor you and to bring glory to your name and to point people to the hope of the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your promises. We commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. It comes from the book of Romans, chapter 11, verses 33 and 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you, friends. Have a terrific week.